Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt, here with Travis Bonilla. We're at Bergstrom, it's July 16th, 2021. Travis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for asking me to to do this. Absolutely. Uh, First question, biggest one to get you started, is why wine? Uh, Good question. Um, The, uh, it's an inebriant, I think. (laughs) Uh, I always think that um, the thing, the product that we're making is, I, I joke that it's an inebriant, but really, it's this substance that people people look to, people collect, people put on a table to to celebrate, and you know, I mean, well, sometimes to celebrate, sometimes to mourn, whatever. It's a it's a special substance that you know the human race has been making for millennia, and so it, I don't know. I th- I I feel fortunate to be part of this like lineage. Of, of winemakers. Yeah. Talk about your life before wine. Uh, where were you born and raised, and, and what did you do after high school? Uh, I was born and raised in uh, Santa Clarita. In uh, it's like basically the northernmost suburb of Los Angeles. And um, yeah, I was raised in the same house my whole childhood. I was the youngest of three kids. Uh, did well in school, super bookish, and um, got into music in high school, and wanted to be a poet or a filmmaker. And uh, but yeah, I always wanted to do well in school. So when uh, when it came time to go to college, uh, an English teacher in uh, my junior year of high school told me about Reed up here in uh, in Oregon in Portland, and. Yeah, I went there and made it through somehow. <laughs> uh, it was a difficult uh, academic school for me, but uh, but yeah, I would, wouldn't trade it. The, that experience, I met a lot of great people, learned a lot about life, and uh, met my wife there. And yeah, was that the question? Tell me, tell me about your experience, Reed. You mentioned it being difficult for you. Uh, what were the what were the best parts of it? What were the things you took away from it? Yeah. Um, well, I say it was difficult just because, yeah, like it was rigorous. Uh, I was disabused of some like illusions there. Um, you know, like wanting to be a poet, for instance, that kind of went out the, the window pretty quickly when I, I don't know, saw the, uh, what, <laughs> What, what other great people had done before me, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, just the, I guess the wheel of, of academia was, you know, kind of grinded me a bit. But it's also where, I mean, it's where I learned about wine. It's where I just met a lot of people that still to this day, like, you know, they're my tribe. And yeah, and I think a lot of it was just, I mean, I don't maybe I could have gone anywhere as a you know as a young man and had a similar experience it was just eye opening to get out of the house my uh my family they all still like you know live like 5 minutes from each other and um yeah I've never gone back though I do miss California um but uh yeah mentioned discovering wine college. Tell me about that. Tell me about when wine became part of your life. It was my freshman year. I had, uh, I had a, a, my best friend was uh, Matt Kessler and he's this Jewish guy from Alabama and his, uh, his father was a physician and I think, I think he was from Maryland. But um, so yeah, I befriended this guy and you know Matt, he he went to like boarding schools since he was like a, a young guy, um, like that kind of thing. You know, I met people with just these different life experiences. 
Um, but some of it, I mean, I think a lot of it was just also just socioeconomic, like being exposed to people of different, you know, these different walks of life. Um, like, you know, it was very exotic to, to have a friend that went to boarding school. It's like, that's something you see in the movies. But um, I, I befriended him and, or he befriended me, really. Uh, and he was, you know, he was a great guy that helped me just blossom, brought me out. And, uh, and his father visited him his freshman year. And they went to wine country, <laughs> which I never even, I never made it out to wine country, I think, until like six years after, after college. Still didn't know, you know, like, oh, there's a wine country somewhere. But his father left him a, a case or a case and a half of wine just on, you know, it was there on his, uh, on his dorm room floor for us to explore. And so um, we would get together and, and just make spaghetti with like, you know, ragu or something. Just like, just, uh, we would we'd do that like every Friday night. We'd have, uh, we'd have dinner together in, in one of our dorm kitchens and drink a bottle of wine. And uh, <laughs> the, the most, like, I don't know, uh, sophisticated experiences I ever had was, was when we were, um, you know, like at sp springtime in college, like everybody would, you know, would leave the library and, you know, and be studying out on the, on the lawn, you know, after like a, a cold, wet winter. And Matt Kessler, you know, he brought out like a chilled bottle of, of Riesling. I don't remember any of these producers, but um, it was all Willamette Valley. And so I just remember, you know, sitting on a blanket drinking like a chilled glass of, <laughs> of reasoning. It was pretty sweet stuff. And, um, and yeah, I was like, okay, this is, this is what wine is. This <laughs> uh, I guess that would be my introduction to wine there. That and spaghetti and ragu. Well, of course. Yeah, yeah. That's what everybody gets into it. I should mention pizza, too. We did pizza a lot of nights. Yeah. So by the time you got out of college, you knew that wine went with cheap Italian food. Cheap Italian food, okay. cheap Italian food, and pizza time. So after college, what comes next? Uh, after college, um, I hung around Portland a little longer because uh, I met uh, this beautiful girl named Kate Hardy, my wife, future wife at that time. And uh, so yeah, I just I worked some office jobs, and uh, in you know as a insurance clerk. And still, I was in, I was in a, uh, a band at the time. So that kind, of, that kind of thing is what I did for a few years. We, we moved uh, to San Francisco when she graduated a couple years after I had. Um, so we lived in San Francisco from like 2005 to 2007. And where I, you know, I worked at a bookstore and I worked at a bakery, just kind of getting by and like playing music when I could. And it was when we visited friends back up in Portland that, um, and we decided to move back just because it was treading water down in the Bay Area. I ran into my good friend, uh, me and Kate ran into our good friend, Greg McClellan, who, uh, who graduated from Reed College a couple years before me. And so he was walking down the street one day and we were driving by and we stopped and and we just, you know, made connections again and started hanging out all the time. And uh, through him, I met another, um, another fella, uh, Grant Coulter, uh, who was working, he was working at Beaufrere, I think, by that time. This was, I think, like in 07. And um, so it was really hanging out with those two guys that um, I learned about wine and really learned to appreciate it. Uh, you know, it was like that was really the, the like uh, like I got I got more sophisticated with with my my knowledge of wine increased and it was I mean it was debauchery too, it was <laughs> it was a lot of fun, and uh, and yeah I just re I just remember wondering at them like like you guys make a living like doing this like is this tell me more and um, and it was within about a year that uh, I got married and my wife Kate encouraged me to, to quit my job and, uh, and, and take a harvest position. And yeah, really, and that was, that was again through, 
through my, my friends, like Grant Coulter and, and Greg McClellan, really, uh, they helped me find a position, you know, like, you should go talk to this guy, talk to this guy, like, you know, got me phone numbers and email addresses and stuff like that. So um, there were a couple, of course, you know, bum leads, you know, uh, and, uh, but when I, the, what, what stuck was I met uh, Doug Tunnell and interviewed with him, walked, walked through the vineyards at Brick House, uh, bumbled through somehow. And um, yeah, and he took me on in 08 for, for the harvest. I remember sending him a, uh, I sent him my resume and, um, <laughs> and he had this kind of um, enigmatic, sarcastic reply about, um, well, your, uh, your, liberal arts, <laughs> your liberal arts education will lend yourself well to, uh, to, to work here at, at, at Brickhouse. <laughs> And uh, when I got to know him better, uh, yeah, I saw the, uh, you know, that's, that's the genius of Doug. <laughs> um, I think it, it was just that, yeah, I had no experience. And all I could put on my resume was I went to college, I worked at a bookstore. And that's how um, I remember that when people, when people are applying here for internships. Um, you, I don't want to take on a whole team of, of green people, but everyone does need a chance. And... Um, yeah, a lot of people in this industry, I think, they, don't, they didn't go and you know, study. They, didn't, they don't have a four-year degree or a two-year degree. Um, but I always try to remember to give them a chance, because everyone has to start somewhere. So I'm curious about the, that, sort of, that sort of period of your wine education from kind of having had some wine as a college student to actually yeah. wanting to quit what you were doing and go and try it, to try to actually do it. Tell me about what you learned about wine in that time and how you learned about wine in that time that, yeah. that made it something you thought you might want to do on a more permanent basis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, at that time, I just recall, I mean, like, being able to, being able to, like, distinctly taste the differences between what I had always just experienced as, like, you know, uh, alcohol, you know, <laughs> like, from from one, one Pinot Noir the same year, but in a different place in the Willamette Valley, or be it Europe or the wherever, um, that was that was like you know fascinating to me, and yeah, no matter how jaded I get now um, about terroir and you know all these all these distinctions um, that we yeah maybe sometimes ascribe to things uh, a little too you know. A little too much, but I try to remember that fascination back at the beginning. Um, wine can be, yeah, very beautiful, and you can you can see you can see how the same the same grape could basically be be elevated up to here, or it can be it could be. I mean, it is great to taste something so bad and then have something so good. Um, it 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 was a like a craft, basically. You could, I could see that this is a craft, and I had never really wanted to. Careers for me were, I never had like a, a career goal or wish or something. Um, I wanted to, to like play music, and everything else was just like a, a sinecure, just like a position that I, you know, well, I'll, like be it, I'll be a postman and just like, you know, make a little bit of money, but my passion is going to be you know, when I get home. So, yeah, I grasped onto it as like a, the first, the first thing I've ever come across that, oh, you can, you can make a living doing this. It's a craft that you, that you can, you can get better. I mean, it's not something that you can just go to school for, I believe. You can't just go to school for it and, um, you know, you're not learning to be an electrician. I think going to school is great, like you should. Um, there's a lot of like red lines that you learn, you know, not to cross. Um, but uh, it is this craft that, you know, it's, you, 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 you go and you work for somebody and it's an apprenticeship and you learn the craft from, from that person or from that group of people. And, um, 
And the whole, the distinction between vintages and between varietals and locations where they're grown, that was very attractive too because you, the, the challenge of that and the endless possibilities that was very, that's intriguing, it still is. Like I love that about wine that you, you can't, you can't really like rest on the formula. There is no formula. Um, so you're not, you're not just like resting on the laurels that you've earned or the, uh, or the methods that you've, that, that worked last year. And there's a lot of freedom there too. Like no one's gonna pin me down with expectations because it's not like, it's not like oh, everybody wants this Hefeweizen to be, to taste this way every bottle. It's like, no, it's like, I have, we have the chance every year to make it whatever it wants to be or whatever it ends up being. And that's, there's, I don't know, a lot of freedom there. And I don't think you get that in a lot of jobs. All you have to do is make it, is make it good, but it could be good in, in a different way every year, every bottling. So you come into First Harvest now, you, you, you somehow wheedled your way into working with Doug at Brickhouse. Yeah. Tell me about First Harvest. What, what was the experience like? It was great. It was it's so exciting. I had, um, I, we, you know, we just started out like any harvest, I think, just cleaning. <laughs> also, like, you know, walking around the vineyard. I mean, Doug was very, uh, very uh, open to, to sharing, like, his, his knowledge of, of that location. And to see, I mean, he really was responsible for uh, getting me into this because, I mean, Brickhouse is just so romantic. Like, he, he and Melissa like live on the property. It's all like, you know, it's just his backyard. Basically like, you know, it's, it, he can see all of it right here and he can manage it all. It's like not too big, he owns it. No one's his boss, you know. Like I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> You're like, I want to be this guy. Um, it's a beautiful place, and the wine's spectacular. So, um, yeah, that year, that that vintage, it was it was great to everything was brand new. So learning, you know, just about viticulture, just the first little inklings of of you know how the vine is put on the wire. And the, those, those final stages that, that I got to witness um, of the ripening. But a lot of it was, yeah, just like, just getting dirty and blasting, you know, blasting bins with a, with a pressure washer with, uh, with a new friend that, you know, like, this is gonna be your, you know, <laughs> this is gonna be your other intern friend. And um, I was coming from an office too. Uh, so that was amazing just to be outside getting sun. What were the maybe some of the biggest? Uh, what were the biggest? What were the things you weren't expecting about winemaking or about always about harvest winemaking? What were you? Yeah. What did you go in thinking you'd be doing, and what, what what was different about what the actual experience was like? Yeah. Um, I guess uh, the it's like dirty hard work, you know. Like it wasn't. Um, it wasn't like the sophistication of, uh, of, of, you know, tasting or, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't sitting in a room like having some wine with a friend. It was you, <laughs> you're gonna take something that's been like stored outside and, and get it ready to, you know, to, be, to hold something that's gonna be bottled like in a year. And the heavy equipment, the noise of it all, and the long hours, I guess. I mean, I had been told about that. But to experience it was was something different. But um, well, no, like that's the the great thing about about harvest time is you you don't really you can't slow down, and everything is just it's I've never been I don't know, it's it propels forward, and you you don't get a chance to like you know to to take to take your time to, to stop and you're part of this big team. It, I don't know, like I've never, I've, it, I have all respect for people in the military, so I'm not <laughs> saying like want to compare myself to, to a soldier or something, but um, there's something about harvest where 
it's it's what my impression is from movies or, or books or stories about like a military campaign or, or really like a, like master and commander kind of stuff where you're you're on a ship and you're stuck with those people <laughs> you're stuck in that place and um, and you just like make do like there's no like okay we'll just you know what this isn't working you're right so okay let's just cancel this for today and we'll pick it up tomorrow or next week we'll have to order that you know nothing like that like you just have to make it happen and and that is that 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 creates the energy that 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 i think you, everybody kind of i dread it before harvest hits but once it's there once it's like fine that 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 wave has crashed on you you're just you just swim and you and you're pulled pulled along with it and I think that was exciting, and yeah, and I, I wanted to be—I wanted to do it again. And that's that's what I hear from a lot of folks that are in the wine industry when you talk about harvest. It's the—it's like the hardest part of the year, but it's the most exciting part of the year. Yeah. So you came out of it with that with that kind of mindset of being hard, but wanting to do it again. So yeah. what happens next after harvest is overweight? Yeah, I. Um, I'm a responsible kind of guy, so I I was I wanted to like take some classes, you know. I wanted to basically get get what education I could, but um, you know, being close to 30 already, I wanted you know I I couldn't I, I wasn't gonna go do a four-year degree, and um, I talked with people in the valley. I talked with Doug, and uh, I, I in my mind I remember Doug telling me about Chemeketa. And that was a great program, because um, we were talking about OSU as well. But um, the Chemeketa program, he had said, was just this great hands-on um, program that you could continue to, to, get, to, to get experience working, but um, just something local that also would, would allow you to meet other people in the area. And that, that definitely played out. And so, yeah, I started taking classes at um, Portland Community College to get, to get um, I remember I had to go take like an algebra class because it had been a long time. <laughs> and, you know, like general chemistry. And then, uh, and then I, I was in the program at Chemeketa while working at Brickhouse. Um, I worked at Brickhouse throughout the year, um, kind of partly part-time. <laughs> um, sometimes he had work for me. Um, you know that month and the next month not but yeah I helped out with like bottlings I mowed the lawn um, I got to house sit for a month one time it was great um, drank a lot of uh, Cascadia Chardonnay it was great um, so uh, yeah so that's that's really the next step I, 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 uh, I did that for two years and I worked yeah that 08 and then the 09 vintage at Brickhouse and um, in the summer of 2010, I was almost done at Chemeketa. I think I still have three classes to take, <laughs> but I got a job um, working here at Bergstrom. Again, Greg McClellan introduced me to, to, uh, to my next career opportunity, my next mentor. Um, he, he and Grant, I think it was at Grant's house, um, but yeah, they, they threw a barbecue and invited Josh there and said, you got to go so that you can meet Josh. And we got along so well right away because um, he's just a hilarious guy. And <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we were just, um, you know, right away making inappropriate jokes with each other and having a great time. And I started work, I think, within like a month. And that was at the very end of June in 2010 before harvest. What was your initial impression uh, of Bergstrom, especially compared to, to where you just come from? What, what was different about it? What were you, what, yeah. And also, what excited you about it? it I mean, the, like, right away, the, the size was, was a different thing. Um, you know, it was like three times the size. Like, I mean, just in vineyard land and in uh, facilities, production level, stuff like that. Um, but also just you know two wineries that have great reputations in the valley, um, similar reputations for like you know biodynamics, but also different styles of wine definitely. 
Um, but uh, yeah, jo joining up at Bergstrom was like a huge opportunity, and I didn't want to mess it up. And so I, I basically just did anything that I could. I mean, as as my friend Greg had said, like. I mean, starting out in the wine industry is just like, just show up before everybody else shows up. <laughs> like, every day. Just be there when you can and, uh, and pick up any slack that you can. And when I, when I showed up here, there was a, a dedicated vineyard crew uh, that also helped out in the cellar. And, uh, and that, that had been, I think, how Josh, Josh had run the place for a long time. And he had had um, recently a guy, Corey Waller, another another friend of mine um, that I had met through that circle of folks with, with Greg and Grant. Um, he had been here for like a, I think a year working in the cellar um, just to kind of augment the, the vineyard crew that, that would, you know, Josh would bring in to help out. And, uh, and so I think, I think that he had seen like a quality difference with Corey being here and when Corey moved on um, I was just at the, the right place at the right time. And I felt super fortunate because a lot of, uh, you know, that was like, like I said, towards the end of my time at Chemeketa. And a lot of the folks that I had been in that program with still struggled to find a position somewhere. Um, which is also why, you know, I had, I had clung to whatever work I could get from Brickhouse at the, you know, throughout that time. And I was supported by my wife the whole time too. Um, so I was fortunate to be able to, you know, take the time to, to go to school and to you know, work partly part-time somewhere. But a lot of my colleagues in, in school weren't as fortunate. And um, I think within like a year or two, some of them just, you know, when I reached out, they, they had left. You know, they, weren't, they weren't even trying to get jobs in the wine industry any longer. Um, so yeah, uh, Bergstrom was great to come to. And, and I do remember like, having to retrain my palate. Um, it was a different, it was a different, um, a different, like, I think I would just sum it up as extraction, <laughs> you know, compared to Brickhouse. Um, the, uh, the wine, and, and Bergstrom had a reputation for, for being like these larger Pinots. And I think um, starting here in the 2010 vintage, it's, uh, I mean, that was like a pretty light vintage or, you know, it was still one of those good old-fashioned like Oregon vintages before the the new normal of of these hot growing seasons. Um, so I, I did see like you know the methodology was a little more yeah extra extraction. But um, that being said, I've I've been here long enough that like working with Josh, he he's made like um, conscious efforts towards uh, elegance. I think compared to um, what, uh, at least the, the reputation of those, those large Pinot Noirs um, and that, that, you know, that he earned from at least the colleagues that I knew at the time. And I think that's been a conscious thing that, um, that I've, seen, I've, I've been part of and uh, I'm proud to be part of. Interesting point talking about retraining your palate. Uh, yeah. It's about sort of from the from the 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 outward part of that. Tell me about learning the new space, learning new vineyards, learning new winery space, learning new kind of yeah. style. Uh, what's the process like for that? How long did it take you? And kind of what was your initial role when you were here? Yeah. Um, well, like, yeah, it was a lot to. It was like I said, it was just so much larger. So there was a lot more to learn and. Um, and I learned a lot from, from Josh, of course, and the, uh, the crew that he had on board. Um, Jorge Chavez was the, was the lead guy's name. And, uh, and then Rodolfo was, was his, uh, I, think his, I think he's related, maybe like a brother-in-law or something. But um, they were the two guys that were in the cellar a lot with me. And so um, I, I was just here to basically be the full-time cellar guy while they were in the vineyards, but also would come in for like you know larger tasks. So yeah, I just tried to to get out of the way sometimes, but um, it was also I think my role to to kind of be coming in with some wine education and make make improvements where I could. 
in the cellar. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think that was, that, was the, that was my role in the beginning. And, and then within, within a year, the, uh, that, that crew moved on. And so then it became, um, yeah, this, this uh, oh, okay, I'll, 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 we'll figure it out. And there was a bit of a learning curve uh, when, you know, Josh's plans for everything that we were going to get done that day or that week was like, we don't have a crew to do it anymore. Like, so it's just me <laughs> and you and your dad. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so we, uh, we made it work. And it was great because I got to basically do a bit of everything. Yeah. yeah. What are the, the, the biggest, as you look back in your time here, what are the biggest changes that you've been a part of? You mentioned kind of the wine change. Yeah. What about from a systematic perspective or from a winemaking perspective? What, what's different now than when you started? What, what have you kind of, what has your role been in, in that evolution? Yeah, I've been here like 11 years now. So it's definitely just, it just is always evol evolving. Um, working for Josh, he, um, he, he never settles. He's always planning something bigger, something, or if it's not bigger, he's always planning something new. He's improving. And it's one of the, I think the thing that makes him a great winemaker is he's constantly excited about the next, the next thing that we could be doing to just, you know, he always says like, if it makes it the wine 1% better, we're gonna do it. Um, and I see, I think that um, our relationship works because I tend to balance, I think I balance that because I'm the, he's like floating up in the sky and I'm, I'm like holding the kite. <laughs> um, because I, you know, I'm like, well, it worked last year. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm the, and I'm, I'm kind of the record keeper. Um, and that, that started just from, you know, being like, okay, someone's got to do the TTB reports. My father's doing it right now, so sit down with him and you know, you're gonna take it over. And that kind of began right away and it also put in my hands like record keeping for the, for the winery. Um, not just what you have to report to the government, but you know, what, what yeast did we use on, on fermenter 4T7 from block 5A last year? And so, you know, when we talk about, when we talk about new things to do, it's also like, well, what worked in the past what didn't work in the past. Um, so yeah, part of, uh, so that's, yeah, I think that's about, I love that, I love that in life anyways, like kind of collecting things and keeping, keeping a record of something. And, uh, and so I think it pairs well with Josh, who is always, always moving forward. And, and there I am just to kind of slow it, slow it down. <laughs> I'm digging my heels in while the horse is <laughs> pulling. Um, what was the question? I even forget. <laughs> sort of the, the changes you've seen here. Yeah. And, yeah. And the role you've played. So you covered that that one. I'm I'm curious in terms of um, uh, sort of size and scope of operations. Yeah. Has that changed significantly since you were here? If anything, we've gone. We've. I mean, I've been here when we've gone up in production and then we've come down again. And since day one, it was always like, I want this place to be, I want to make less wine, but you know, just increase quality and um, that, you know, dial it in, but not make more. He didn't want to become like, you know, 50,000 cases or something, which always sounded great to me. Like I said, with Brick House, where like being able to hold everything in your hand, um, that just sounds so much more manageable. Like if when it's a numbers thing, like when it gets too big, I can't remember, I can't, I can't keep track of it all. Um, so yeah, I've been fortunate to work at a place that has actually done that, where we can just try to make things better. Um, so yeah, I've been here for, for, for that, act, that dream being realized. I've seen, um, I mean, we built a lot just, you know, we're not getting bigger in production, but we're getting better facilities. It's, a, it's, it's Bergstrom and it's this big place and it's got prestige, but it's just, it's just run by a family. And, and I definitely appreciate that. Like I know, I know the people that, that make all the decisions and they're here every day and I eat lunch with them every day. So 
yeah. Um, what other changes? I don't know. It's just gotten so much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me how your role has changed. Uh, obviously, yeah. um, with, all, with, with that day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, what does your role look like? What does your job look like? Yeah. Um, it's changed like over a decade's time. You know, for a while, I was the only guy in the cellar, and so that was you know doing every like doing the toppings, doing what lab work I could in like you know the the quieter months, and you know otherwise farming that out to uh, to the local labs, and uh, doing doing biodynamic sprays in the vineyard. We've done I've done like you know. Some years we've we've gone out there and pruned ourselves. In addition, you know, just to kind of augment the crew, um, and other things like like leaf pulling and shoot positioning, which is great because I mean, uh, any winemaker should should know what happens in the vineyard and know how to do it. At least have done it once. <laughs> and I've never driven a tractor, except to like go like dump pumice or something, but never down a row. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, but as the years have gone by, we've, when we could, as, the, as the, the company's grown a bit and we can afford it, we've taken on like new staff. And so I think it was in 13 that we, we hired like a, uh, basically a cellar master as I became the assistant winemaker, uh, Ryan Miller, who's still with Bergstrom now in the, uh, in the office. Uh, he, he had a couple years in the cellar, and then he was like, yeah, what else do we got around here? <laughs> He's a smart man. And, uh, and then uh, we, we had another, another cellar master, Jess Arnold, who's now gone over to uh, Soder. And uh, so yeah, once we've, when we took on like, more help, um, I was you know, able to concentrate more on, on yeah, that record keeping and just to have to have like the facilities around here need to be managed all the time, so that's a big that's a big uh, role as well, logistics. Um, and yeah, we currently since 2019 we uh, we have a great size team. Um, we have an enologist, Michael Pascarelli, and our cellar master, Maddie Rausch. So they've definitely helped just dial in. Everything, every like you know, wish that we've had to make this place run better, um, and the harvests are just getting much more manageable, and uh, and yeah, just less chaos, and and yeah, constantly creating higher quality wine. Talk about your winemaking sort of style or philosophy. Obviously, it's it's not your name on the label. It's not, not your yeah. brand. So. How much of it, what goes on here, is your decision and, and sort of your style, and how much are you fitting into kind of a, a house style here? Yeah, I think, I think that um, it's, it's all just about the house style. And uh, one reason I, I mean, one of the reasons I still work here is that my opinion is respected, you know, but it is, I think one reason that it's respected is because you know, I, I, I make, I make those decisions just through that lens of like, what is that? What is a Bergstrom wine? Um, and as I mentioned earlier, like when I came here, I had to, you know, train my palate, or really Josh had to train my palate, and he did very well, I think. <laughs> um, and. It's, I think that's just one of the great things about being at a place for, for a long time is, yeah, the not just like, not even, not even be able to like verbalize things that well, but when you, when you taste it or smell it or you see it like in a fermenter, you're like, oh yeah, this block in this vineyard behaves this way or it tastes this way usually or doesn't taste this way usually. What's going on? Um, that, um, that's one of the things I love about just being at the same place this long. But yeah, as far as my own take, like, you know, where's my mark in it? It's just the house. It's the house style that, that I, you know, that's my job is to help make that expression. Um, and that, yeah, it doesn't, it's not like really something that 
I don't feel like like my my freedom is crushed like by subs, you know being subsumed by the house style or something. I uh, I just think that's you know that's what the that's what it's that's what's called for, mm -hmm. and that's what I mean. I think that's what winemaking is too. Like we could we could harvest we could harvest um, you know the same clone and this was grown in the same spot and give it to you know four different wineries and it'll taste different. Um, and I'm not gonna, it's not like a terroir, you know, there's, there is terroir, I agree, I, you know, I'm not gonna argue that, but I do think that it's, the way you make the wine is very important, and that's your house style. So I think a consumer continues to, you know, come back to, to your wine because they respect and, and enjoy and love your, your style. And so, yeah, that's what the job is, like learning that and how to make that style. Now that we've talked about that, yeah. describe for me the, the Bergstrom style. And you, you mentioned how it had changed. How has it changed uh, since you've been here? And how, how, do, you, how would, do you describe it? Yeah. Um, I think with, with uh, Pinot Noir, the easiest, the easiest, like, the easiest way to describe the change is, is like whole cluster inclusion, and um, and ripeness, which has been a funny balance with these like warmer years. But um, it's been like we we basically want the wine to have a tension, not not a, like uh, pay attention, but tension, <laughs> tensile, you know. Um, or uh, you know, liveliness and electricity versus something that's like soft and sweet and too round. So it's a challenge in these in these warmer years to capture that, but that can be dialed in with um, with with vineyard practices and yields, but also just making making the call like when it when it comes to to harvest time, when to bring the fruit in, and. Um, and the whole cluster inclusion piece just adds to adds to that as well. You can um, I don't know the, the the backbone of of the wine is is basically strengthened with with the tannin from those whole cluster that whole cluster inclusion, and and that has also just led to this like st steering the ship more towards towards elegance and complexity. Um, I don't know. I guess that's the biggest that's the biggest change I've seen with Pinot Noir. And then with Chardonnay, we've done we've done like several different things in the winemaking. Uh, just from even like instead of instead of racking racking the Chardonnay at the end of the year and bottling it within within a month, like you know, we rack it and we put it in tank on lees for for three to four more months, and. Um, and we've we've become better at at um, finishing it as well with fining, like dialing that in, and that's all to to basically have a have a, a Chardonnay that that tastes fresh and and I, well, like more more like lemon and limes versus pineapple. <laughs> basically, the easiest way to describe. Um, the, the goal for, of our Chardonnay, I think. And, uh, but as far as changes, that goes down to, to, I mean, it used to be something that we would, we would harvest after the Pinot Noir, and now it's, it's the opposite, where we're bringing it in before. And that was in 2011, Josh went over to, to Burgundy. And when he came back, and after seeing the way that they harvest Chardonnay, it was, it was eye-opening because when we're tasting, you know, we're tasting like juice samples or clusters in the field, it used to be, you know, you're waiting for like a flavor profile. And you're also looking at, you know, the, the numbers, you know, the, the acidity and the, and the bricks levels, of course. Um, but his experience when he came back that he related to me was there, you know, the, the clusters on the, that, that are going into the press, like they taste, like lemon head candies, 
or lemons <laughs> versus you know something that that you're that's like these secondary flavors um, and that has made I think that that was like the first thing that has led to like the new style so obviously you've been here for a lot of growth in the in the Oregon wine industry yeah before we talk about the industry more in general I'm curious in terms of sort of marketplace and, and sales how has Workstrom adjusted over, over time, over increased competition? And what, if any, has your role been with that? Not much. <laughs> um, I think that they've, um, the goal here that I've, I've always understood is just to be, to cultivate a wine club. And they've always done well. I mean, it's one of the great things about working here. We've, they've never, Josh and Caroline have done a great job with, yeah, hiring sales staff and putting a lot of effort into into that side of the business. When I first, the first like you know, few years, it's really only been like the past couple years um, that uh, Josh hasn't had to be flying around the country all the time. Uh, so, but all to say is like. The guy has put in a lot of work to, <laughs> to, 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 to earn this kind of, you know, the, the comfort, to earn me this comfort of like, oh yeah, I'll just be here and help you make the wine. And I, yeah, I have colleagues that, you know, work other places that it's their vintages behind. And um, yeah, so I, I just, I feel very fortunate to be here where we have a great sales staff and a great reputation that, yeah, has been, I think, earned from what I can see. <laughs> um, like, it's hard work. It's not just, it's not just like, yeah, it's because we make great wine. There are, I'm, there are plenty of people that make great wine that uh, struggle as a brand. Um, so, yeah, does that answer your question? Let's talk a little bit about 2020. Obviously, every, everyone's favorite topic to talk about. Right. Uh, let's start with the pandemic. Uh, I'm curious. Tell me about sort of uh, spring 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, the pandemic hits. Things start to, to, to close down. Tell me about sort of initial reaction for you personally and professionally uh, to that, and what kind of adjustments did you have to make uh, in the yeah. kind of immediate aftermath? Yeah. Um, big subject. <laughs> um, I mean, here. It was horrible to, we had to say goodbye to uh, tasting room staff was the first thing because the tasting room just couldn't stay open. And yeah, it was a scary time for everybody. We were fortunate, like we, we continued to come to work as a production staff. And um, we're, be, being a small staff, we were able just to spread out between two buildings, still have lunch. I remember the spring of 2020 was pretty sunny, <laughs> you know, because we were eating outside a lot. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to minimize like the. It was a yeah, a horrible year, and uh, yeah, I was lucky to be here, I think. And yeah, meanwhile, my wife and kids were stuck at home. And yeah, there's all the fear everybody experienced. But yeah, I, I just was here coming to work still. And I'm grateful for that. Kept a little, kept some sanity. I got to actually, you know, uh, socialize with adults, the people at work, my friends at work. <laughs> so yeah, it was definitely like this, yeah, this uh, bastion of, of normalcy in that, uh, scary sea of pandemic times. And of course, the other, the other part of 2020 was, was the, the fire's last harvest. Yeah. So tell me about that, too, and about, again, sort of initial reaction, and, and then what did you have to do uh, as the smoke rolled in? Yeah. Um, we, we started harvesting, like, actually just the, like, yeah, it was the day before. It was the day before Labor Day. And we had already we had already determined that you know a couple blocks from Dundee were ready, and I remember coming in that day and um, and just remarking like yeah it's supposed to be get crazy windy I think it was at lunch it was like yeah it's supposed to get crazy windy this afternoon 
because on my little Wonderground app, it had said like, uh, you know, I'm looking through the hourly forecast, like three o'clock, it's like 18 mile an hour winds. It's like, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty windy, isn't it? Um, and uh, yeah, sure enough, it got pretty windy. And, um, and then the next day, we, uh, we all arrived and we had no power. And that, that uh, evening, Josh and Caroline, his, his whole family, were um, staying you know, just next to the winery at a, at a house. Um, and uh, everyone else had, just, had left just like a few minutes before, and he and I were talking. And you know, we, had, we had been doing things that day, like you know, still sampling vineyards. And the smoke was, you know, we're, we're on the Shehala Mountains, like kind of the foothills. And Bald Peak is really close by. And, and it just had this strange pattern of, you know, blue skies like above Bald Peak, but, but the smoke was coming in. And just that eerie wind. And we're talking and I'm about to leave and it's like, is that a fire? And on the, it was getting dark enough, like you could see like a glow. And so that night, like, you know, I was telling my wife, I was like, I don't know if the winery will be there tomorrow because there's like a, with this wind and there's a fire. And um, the next day we brought in, oh, like 15 tons of fruit. We, we brought in, which for us, like, we, we, like 20 tons is a really big day. Um, and we didn't have power. So it was like, you know, we had made these plans. Let's just start bringing things in as quickly as we can, you know, looking at our samples from that day and previous days, it was like, okay, like, these are really close. And shouldn't we just like, you know, we don't know what's gonna, and it was the good call, I think. And, but yeah, and that next day was crazy because it was just, you know, it never got light. <laughs> and people were, you know, out sorting, we were sorting fruit in the field with headlamps in the picking bins. And luckily, be, luckily because of COVID, <laughs> lucky for COVID, we, um, everybody already had these like N95s um, or KN95s, whatever they were. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the silver lining is you know, we were able to work in the smoke with, uh, with some protection. Uh, but, but yeah, that was a crazy day. And, and yeah, and the craziness just increased obviously. But um, we did what we could, and we brought in we brought in fruit, you know, in earnest, and changed our fermentation protocols a bit just to go go a little lighter on things and make things you know go through a little quicker. And we're really happy with the way it turned out ultimately. But um, but yeah, just another thing. <laughs> Just like the last 15 months or so have been just, just another thing. Just another thing. Uh, so tell me, uh, we talked about the, kind of the industry in general now. Tell me about, uh, if you can think back to sort of your first impressions uh, of Oregon wine, of whether, whether it's the wine itself or of the industry itself, uh, and what's changed about it to now uh, from, yeah. from kind of your first impression? Uh, yeah, I, well, I think it's true what everyone says about the the community in the Oregon wine industry, the camaraderie, and yeah, I, I still do, I, I don't think it's changed in the decade that I've been in the industry, how open people are to help each other out with, with advice, with, yeah, with methodology, with opening their cellars to each other. Um, yeah, I, I use, I use, my contacts, my, my friends all the time, you know, just reaching out and like being like, hey, we're thinking about getting an air compressor. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> you know, everyone like, and, and yeah, and you have to do it for other people too. When people ask a question, yeah, it's like, oh, I haven't, I haven't taken that document out in a while. Like, let me find it and share it with somebody. And so, and what I've, what I've been told and what I've seen a bit of the California wine industry, it's very competitive. And maybe it's just a size thing, it's too big. But, um, so yeah, I would, I value that. And I mean, it's also just with people, you know, colleagues decide, 
hey, it'd be really great to have like, you know, a Chardonnay, a Chardonnay symposium. Let's do it. And people volunteer their time, a lot of time, and organize such things because we all love Chardonnay and like we want to make better Chardonnay, so let's do that as a community and like sit at, t sit at mini tables in a room and like just share like how we do it, what worked for me, what didn't work for me, what I don't like about your wine, <laughs> what I love about it, you know. Um, I think that, uh, what I, yeah, the, the wine community continues to, I mean, we're just trying to be better ourselves and, and kind of, if, if, you, if, you, if you bring everybody with you, you're not gonna, you're not gonna like not look as good or something, you know, like everybody wants better wine in this, in this place anyways. So, yeah, and then, uh, other than that, I mean, just like going into Portland, there just seems to be like more development, more money. Um, but that's the way things go. I guess it's better than the opposite direction. <laughs> really interesting point with Chardonnay, and of course, it's been a topic of conversation in our in our interviews recently. Yeah. Sort of the the rise of Oregon Chardonnay. So tell me about from your perspective what's what's what has changed about Oregon Chardonnay and, and what it what it's kind of what it kind of looks like now in 2021. It's it's place in the in the state. Yeah. Well, I think that. Um, as far as winemakers, well, they're just the ones I hang out with, like people have gotten sick of Pinot Gris. I'm sure other people have said that. Um, and uh, yeah, I just recall that there it wasn't long ago that people people needed more of it. You know, like it wasn't even planted enough. So we're we're heartened here because we're huge Chardonnay proponents that you know, more people are growing it and making it. And from what I've tasted throughout you know, the years, I think that, it, that the quality continues to go up and up. And it's closer to, I don't know, it's this middle ground between like Burgundy and, and California, where it's not the overly buttery and oaky California ripeness kind of thing. And it's, it, we're not Burgundy, we can't, we're not gonna be able to do that. I, f I feel like in Oregon you get this marriage between the two that I think is a great balance. So yeah, I don't know, Chardonnay I think is, is rightly, you know, taking its place in Oregon. Is there something you're looking forward to or something you're fearful of as you look into as you look into the future? Yeah, I'm I'm fearful of I mean when I the first harvest I did it was September 28th that'll probably be like when we get started. And and then I recall I think it was in 10 or 11 like one of my first vintages here. I think it was 11. And um I remember being at like a Halloween party with Josh and we had maybe brought in a little bit and now it's totally normal to start, you know, September 10th, at least here, which is, we're on the early side, but um, that's not going away. And so, yeah, I'm fearful of the growing seasons and how drought and heat and fire are going to affect our industry. Yeah, especially the virus right now because that wasn't fun and there's a, just so much disagreement and I mean there's just a dearth of knowledge about like how do you manage it in wine and how do you, yeah, how do you fix that? How do you avoid it? Any, you know, smoke impact. So yeah, I think that's a huge challenge. Um, Wanna, and then, yeah, also the, you know, vineyard labor is difficult. And that's, I mean, that's, that has to do with a lot of, like, huge issues, like immigration issues and immigration rights and fair pay. But, yeah, it's, it's difficult to get, to get the help that, that you need in the vineyard. 
And like I was saying earlier, it's difficult work, and I have all the respect for the people that do it. Um, that's another long-term big issue, I think, that the wine industry and a lot of industries in this country will have to face soon. But, um, but yeah, like a year like 2020 kind of, yeah, Shakespeare, like, oh, this is going to be forever? This, you know, well, when we talk about, you know, the hit, like vineyards and the, the history of, of European wine, now I just wonder, like, yeah, do we, with what's happening to the climate, like, are people going to be able to grow grapes where they have for hundreds of years or thousands of years? And when, and, and can we even, like, expect that for ourselves? Like, how, like 50 years into the future? Um, but yeah. On a more short-term kind of thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had mentioned earlier that the kind of the style uh, reflective of the kind of the tension, the cool, the cool climate tension that you get, uh, mm -hmm. and, and trying to kind of capture that with harvests moving up. Earlier, yeah. How does that affect what you do and the decisions you have to make to get that kind of wine? Uh, it's a good question. Um, well, I think that you, I mean, there is like a balance where you have to, there's, there's the chemistry of it, like what, you know, what kind of pH you want that wine to be at. Um, just the acidity level of, of, a, of the wine, sorry. Um, but yeah, you can't always, you can't just go on the numbers because it needs to, like physical ripeness needs to happen as well. Like, organoleptically, like, you know, what is it going to taste like? So that, I mean, that's just, it's a good question and it's a huge challenge, definitely. Like when we're, we're challenged with that every year, especially these hot years, but we, you can achieve it. And I think it's one of the benefits of having enough land that you can, you can just kind of hedge bets and it's the whole like spice rack melange that you can that you you have you know the opportunity to to exploit it's like well let's just bring in some you know this this i think is ready sure you know and <laughs> it's it's one of those things where it you can't it's not like a a perfect apples to apples too when you're like looking at the chemistry from the previous year we find that all the time where it's like, it's like, wow, like, you know, the TAs are really similar, but look at the pHs because, oh, look, the potassium's totally different this year. Sorry, I should have muted that. Um, so, yeah, like, it, you, you don't have, like, a great easy guide. So a lot of it is, yeah, just a back and forth with the team and with, you do look at records and you use your, your mouth and your nose tasting the juice. But yeah, I mean, to, just, to, just to be able to taste juice and predict what that's gonna turn into in a bottle or in a fermenter even is tricky. And I think that's, you know, partly, that's just experience. And that's why, you know, even when I'm like, I've tasted enough juice today, you know, like I don't want any more, but you you have to because for this year and for next year, just so you're just hoping for that that little sense memory to kick in, like like this this tastes right, and it's hard. And even if the numbers don't really look the exactly, you know, right, sometimes you just go off of yeah your gut your gut feeling from the taste of it. But yeah, it's a very good question. It's hard to it's hard to balance, I think. As you look back uh, through your sort of your time in the industry so far, are there favorite moments, favorite memories, things you're particularly proud of as you look back? Um, I guess the yeah the harvest parties. <laughs> Not a lot of good stories. Uh, yeah, the um, there was one where we were dancing with uh, with bread and and a huge loaf was thrown and it, and it left like a little gash on my wife's forehead. <laughs> it was bread, it was bread, but it was like this big. I don't know if you, what do you call that? Like a boulot or a, I forget. Um, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> super proud of that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
um, self-aggrandizing. Uh, <laughs> what about as you look ahead for yourself, uh, sort of uh, future for your work here at Bergstrom, future beyond that, like things you're looking ahead to, projects, anything on the horizon like that? Yeah. No, I think that, um, I mean, we're, we're talking about designing like a new, a newer facility. It sounds awesome to, I don't know, to kind of, it's something that we've, we've done it a bit, but yeah, the opportunity to, to like actually use the brain trust of, you know, the folks that we have on staff, like, can we, can we make the perfect facility? <laughs> but as far as, yeah, like long-term, what I like about working in the wine industry is it's the same thing every year, but every year is so different that you have to toggle and change. Um, and it's, I mean, it's very seasonal as well, like the work. So what you, what you do in the wintertime is going to be different from, from spring, summer, and fall, um, which a lot of careers, I don't think you can say that. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to more of the same. More of the same. <laughs> Just not the last year. It's not the last year. It was all right. Uh, what, if someone were to ask you for advice or words of wisdom on, on joining yeah. the Oregon wine industry, what would you tell them? Yeah. Um, I guess. I think that um, traveling is is a great is great advice. I've gleaned that just from the the folks that have come through our door, like working harvests. It's something I didn't do, um, but yeah, I think traveling with this career is is a great thing if you if you're of the right age, you know, and you you, you can do that. You don't have a lot of responsibilities yet, or something. Um, and yeah, I do think just listening to listening to everybody that you can drink wine with, you know, like drink wine with a lot of people, and yeah, taste taste a lot of wine, and don't yeah don't close don't close your mind off to to what someone says is bad and what someone says is good. Like, kind of think for yourself until you go to a, to a house and you have a house style. <laughs> but no, like, like really, um, it's something like I, I see a bit too often that people have kind of, they think they know what they like. Um, and it's just, it's too much, too much critical tasting. Like, I don't know, try to enjoy it as well. But, but yeah, stay critical. Enjoy, but stay critical. I like it. That's good. That's good advice. Uh, all the questions that I have for you today, Travis. Is Thanks, Rich. I, I didn't ask that I should have. Anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I appreciate you guys taking the time. Absolutely. We appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having us out. Thanks for our great uh, answers and great stories here. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right, Rich. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.